Something like that. Um, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We've been actually in 1 Corinthians 7 for the last couple weeks, um, and we will finish this chapter this week. Um, just as a, a little bit of recap as you're, as you're turning, remember Corinthians is um, a letter that's been written by the, the Apostle Paul from the city of Ephesus. He's writing back to Corinth. Um, and, and it's a city that he had spent 18 months in. So he's writing a letter to a church that he helped start, that he planted, of people that he knows. And that there's been some written correspondence back and forth between the two churches. Um, and, and Paul has also had some of the folks from that church or associated with that church giving him oral reports. And so as he hears about what's going on in the city of Corinth with God's people in this, this new three-and-a-half, four-year-old church, that he is ministering back to them, pastoring them through a letter. And the concern that has emerged is this, is that Corinth is a very secular city um, with every kind of religious influence you can imagine. It's also a wealthy city. Um, it's a city of kind of independence and, and people trying to make their way. And because of that, every vice, every sin in the world has, has found its way there. And Paul is trying to raise up this church and saying, look, we're not going to build a temple here. You are the temple of God. You have the Spirit of God living in you as individuals and also in you as a collective body, right? That the gospel has power because I didn't come in powerful, um, like, eloquent words. I came, right, with simple words, and yet you believe. And so there's power in it. You've been transformed. And so he's saying the, the temple that will be in Corinth will not be a building. It will be a people, and so you are reflecting the very image, the very character of God to the city of Corinth in your behavior. The issue is, is their behavior hasn't been real good. And so Paul is just working his way gradually through this letter, hitting on 9, 10, 11 different kind of behavioral issues, making sure that they understand that what they believe has implications for how they live. And so what we've seen so far is one of the issues they were having was that they were judging um, people outside in the world too harshly. And he's like, you can't judge them. Like, God will judge them. You don't judge them. They don't have the Spirit of God. But then they weren't judging sin that was within the church amongst their brothers and sisters. And so they have, like, pretty heinous, ugly sin that's going on. And he's like, look, in the church, we do call people on sin, not to destroy them, but to reconcile them, to bring them back, to call them to repentance. Um, and, and what we've seen now in chapter 7 is that he's been walking through relationships. And so he's talked about marriage relationships. We looked at that two weeks ago. Last week we looked specifically at kind of at widows and those who are single um, and their contentment that is found in Christ and what that looks like. And this morning we're going to look specifically um, at the idea of divorce um, and what that means in the church. Here's the thing, right? We live in a, in a nation where the divorce rate is somewhere around 50%. Um, divorce, it affects pretty much every family. Even if it doesn't affect you as an individual couple right now, you may be on your first marriage, most likely, whether it's grandkids or kids or friends or siblings or parents, like you have been affected somehow um, by someone who has had divorce in their past or is currently going through it. Um, we live in a broken world where sin runs rampant. And so this is one of those areas where, that is greatly affected. And the church has tended to go to one extreme or the other, right? And so we've either run over to this side and said, man, it's so normal, we don't even know what to do with it anymore, right? So no big deal. 
Or they've run over here and said, it's actually the worst sin possible, and if you do it, we're going to kick you out, right? And, and, and so it, they've lived on the two extremes. Instead of finding, what, like, what is the healthy, like, what is Scripture teaching? And what do we, what do, we do with this? Because here's the fact, because, right, it, this is one of the reasons we preach the way we do, right? Because this morning, no one's going, who told Jeremy that, about my divorce, right? It's just, it's kind of the next passage up. But we know that if that's a part of your story, that there's already this, probably this thing kind of rising up in your throat a little bit of like, oh man, I should have read ahead. I want to come this morning, right? Like that it, that it, it can affect us and it can, it can bother us. It may be that maybe it's not that you're worried about guilt this morning. It may be that you're simply looking to be vindicated to say, yeah, I'm justified in this. Um, and so what we want to do is, is just look at what Paul's teaching. We're going to look at the words of Christ this morning and talk about this issue that is, that is prevalent. So let's begin in 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 10. Paul writes this, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? And how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? We're going to look at a little more of this um, here in just a minute, but I, I want to read the last two verses of, of chapter 7 as well. This is 39 and 40. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. And what you'll see there is that Paul is, whether he is a, a widower, never married, Paul is, is very hap, happy in his single life. And he has made several comments throughout chapter 7 of like, hey, if you want to be single, I recommend it. Right? He, he's done that several times. Remember the context of what's going on in Corinth. Um, it is a, a very immoral place um, where there has been a, there's a lot of sexual sin and sexual vice where the, the, the cultural kind of marriage norms are that you can look outside of your marriage for satisfaction. Like that was not, would not have been frowned upon in the culture. And so that's the expectation. And because of like this immoral culture, some in the church have swung to this really hyper-spirituality that says there should be no sexual relationships even in marriage, right? Like that we're, we're actually, we, we're more like Christ. We can be more spiritual if we just become celibate. And, and Paul is responding to that and saying, well, no, no, that's not, that's not the case. That's not what I'm calling you to. I'm not telling you that, that, that any sort of sexual relationship is wrong, the difficulty in this passage is going to be this, right? That, that it does feel so normalized. And we understand that, that our culture, um, 
that as a, as a church that we're called to be aliens, right? Like we are foreigners traveling through somewhere, and there are going to be areas where what Christ calls us to, the expectation that he calls us to, is going to set us at odds with the normal patterns and standards of the world. Um, it, it's also complicated by the fact that we've seen some really bad marriages who have just stuck together for a long time, and they're miserable. And that you look at it and you're like, how is that better? Um, it's complicated as well by the fact that marriage is a gift given by God not only to believers but to all. It's a common grace given to all of humanity, which means there will be people who get married who do not understand, like, the God-given intent of marriage, right? And so now they're, they're bringing in their perspective, their viewpoint of marriage. And so you've got this whole, like, kind of kettle brewing of this perspective on marriage, and only a partial bit of it is actually being affected by Scripture. So, we're just going to start here and work our way through it. Um, First and foremost, if we look at verse 10 and 11, to the married I give this charge. He says, not I, meaning Paul, he says, but the Lord, like, I'm I'm simply repeating to you what God, what Jesus has already said. Don't get divorced. All right, so if we're going to start, like, point one would be this, don't get divorced. And you're thinking, man, can't unring that bell, right? But we we just have to kind of start there that the expectation of Scripture is this, is that we don't get divorced. You see it in verse 10. We see it in verse 11. Um, If she does, she should remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. The husband should not divorce his wife. In verse 12 and 13, it's saying, look, even if you have an unbelieving spouse, don't divorce them. Like the, 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 the call of Scripture is don't divorce. It's just where we have to start. Old Testament law told us this. Um, And so often God would actually talk about his relationship with his chosen people, the people of Israel, in the terms of marriage. And he would say, look, when you go off worshiping other gods, you're like an unfaithful wife. And I'm a good husband. I'm a faithful husband that remains here. And so marriage and this idea of divorce, when it's talked about in the Old Testament, is not always just talked about in terms of relationships, but it's spiritualized to say it's, it's telling this picture of how God loves his people and that he's faithful despite their wickedness, despite their strain. We see the book of Hosea. We see this in, in Jeremiah and Isaiah and all the prophets over and over again. And it kind of culminates with Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, uh, chapter 2, verse 16, where we see this. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. And he basically says, I hate divorce. Like Malachi, he's like, I hate it. And so if we start there, right, you can begin to feel like the wheel's coming off real quick because we're like, it's so normal in our culture. It's been normalized some even in the church. And yet what we see, the expectation, the standard is, is we don't get divorced. All right, why? Right, like isn't that the next question? It's not just that we don't, but why don't we get divorced? Like why should that be the expectation? When it's this, it's because marriage is a picture of, of the gospel. So if if you look in Ephesians 5, we hear Paul talk about the church and a marriage this way. Listen to how he's, the language he uses. This is verse 25 of chapter 5. So husbands, love your wives 
as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it, um, cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Then it goes on to quote from Genesis, Therefore a man should leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so Paul is like weaving, right, this idea of marriage in with, and he keeps saying, it's like Jesus loves the church. It's like Jesus is with the church. It's like how Jesus views the church. And so the reason that Scripture is going to say we don't get divorced is because marriage is a gift given on this side of eternity, not forever, to be a symbolic picture of how God loves his people, the church. So let's think about that for just a second. How does he love us? Right? He loves us because he pursues us. He pursues us even though he knows our brokenness and our wickedness and our sin and our baggage. Right? It's why in a wedding ceremony, we don't sign like a contract. We exchange vows. It's saying, I know you and I still promise to do these things. And it's saying we don't know what the future holds for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, for sickness or for health, right? Like, we don't know the future, but I'm saying I'm choosing you, I'm staying with you despite what might happen in the future that I cannot guarantee and that I cannot promise. And so what the gospel says is that God pursues us, and he actually knows us. He knows your wickedness. He knows your heart. That's why in Romans 5 it says that he demonstrates his love for us while we were still sinners, like at our worst, And so, here's the thing. God doesn't simply stand up and say, love you. He demonstrates his love, right? He he pursues and he shows his love and he shows it through living the life that we were supposed to live. And then he goes to the cross to take the death and the punishment that we deserve. And then he beats sin and Satan and death and he lives again. Like, that he demonstrated his love. He didn't just say from on high, hope you can figure out how to get to me. I love you. You should try it. He comes for us and he demonstrates his love. It's sacrificial. It's intentional. It changes us, right? When you're loved by God, you are not the same anymore. It affects you, transforms you, it changes you. You're left better off. And then maybe the kicker is this, it's forever. Right, like God's love for us is not like predicated on how well you do. When he says he loves you, there's a period there. It's forever. And so if marriage then is this gift that is supposed to be showing people, right, like what, how God loves us, it's why we say let no man separate. Like what God has brought together, let no man separate. Why? Because this love is meant to be intentional. And it's meant to be demonstrative that we're showing it to one another so that we're transformed by it. That, it, that we're known, right? We can be fully known, and even in our sin, there's someone that's standing there saying, I love you, even though I know you're junk. And then it transforms us, and we pursue one another when we want to go astray. And then when we get to the end and we're still together, 
when the world would say, that wasn't always pleasant. You should have run. You could have had something more. You could have found more satisfaction, right? The world's screaming those things at us. When we stay together, at the end, God's saying, yes, because I don't leave you. And so look, marriage is an imperfect reflection of a perfect love that God has for us. But it's been given as an intentional symbol to his people to give the world a little bit of like head scratching, why? Things aren't good, why are you still there? Things are hard, why haven't you left? Like, look at how he's treating you. Look at how she's treating you. And we continue to persevere. It's because, right, we've, we've understood that this is a picture of how God loves us. So, so, right, here's where we start. Kind of broad topic, don't divorce. Second, here's why. Because it's a reflection of how God loves us. But, right? But, look at verse 12 through 13. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, don't divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, don't divorce him. Right? But look down at verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So what we see here is Paul says, all right, but we live in a broken, sinful world. And so what's going on here in Corinth is this, that because the gospel has broken into culture and society, right, that there, there hasn't been a church to grow up in in Corinth, that everyone in Corinth was an unbeliever, the gospel has come in and started to save people, that it meant that married couples, sometimes the husband trusted and believed, or sometimes the wife trusted and believed, and now they're standing there and they're going, what do we do with this? Like one of us loves Jesus and the other one doesn't. And so Paul's going to say, hey, look, if they're willing to stick around, you, you, you keep at this. But if, the, if, they're, if they cannot handle you loving Jesus and they walk away, you don't initiate it, but if they walk away, you let them go. We see another kind of but that is given from Jesus. This is Matthew 19. Starting in verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus starts where we're starting today. He just says, like, here's the standard. Here's the expectation. Don't separate. Don't divorce. And they said to him, why then did Moses command one to get a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Right? They're trying to trip him up to say something about Moses. And he said to him, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And so what we're given then is, is like this expectation again from Jesus of we don't divorce. But, right, due to the brokenness of the world, due to sin, due to the fact, look, that you're only one part of the marriage, right? You're only one individual in it and you can't control the other person, Due to sin and brokenness, due sometimes to hard hearts, 
there are some allowances given. And the allowances that we see given between uh, 1 Corinthians 7 and Matthew 19 are this, right? Adultery is an allowance, okay? The abandonment of a spouse, right, as an unbeliever, if they just leave, right, is an allowance. And along with that kind of abandonment would be, um, uh, there can be an abandonment that happens that, where they don't physically leave, right? And so if, if someone is physically abusive, right, like they've abandoned their, their vow to you. They've abandoned the right, right? And so the neglect and, and, and those things come into that element of abandonment. And so here's what Scripture does, though. You notice what Jesus and Paul don't do. They don't say, if these things happen, get out. You must, you are required to divorce. No, he says, look, there are some allowances. You are permitted. But that's not even then said, like, hey, so go do it. What we're going to see is that, that the law here and what Jesus is teaching us is this, is there is going to be an allowance, but the heart of this is going to be reconciliation. That the point is going to be because we're demonstrating this view of, of, of how God loves us, if we can reconcile, then that's, that's where we start. And so we have this odd term that you'll hear sometimes people say of like, was it a biblical divorce? And what they're, what they're asking was, was there biblical grounds for divorce? And, and so we start with that with saying like, Scripture simply kind of says, hey, where we need to start is no divorce. But that there are some allowances for what we would call kind of a, a biblical divorce. And so what Paul is doing is he's trying to just be pastoral here and care for these, these individuals. And do you notice that it's all mutual, that he says it both to the husband and to the wife? Like, if it's a believing husband with an unbelieving wife and she wants to go, let her. Like, he's given the woman, like, it's, it's mutual. And he says the same thing to a wife with a husband. That it's not this thing where a believing husband gets to look at his unbelieving wife and say, submit to me, right? And force her into anything. It's mutual. It's not required, but it's, it's allowed. We're, here's the difficulty in this. If we're not careful, um, if this is our situation, if this is your marriage, we can get too close to it, right? We're so in the midst of it that we can't begin to think through kind of the, the biblical rubric, right, of how we would make that decision. And so it's where you need godly wisdom and pastoral advice. And the dangerous thing is, is that we often turn to people in marriage difficulty who aren't necessarily for marriage or for, like, my marriage, right? They're going to tell me what I want to hear. Be happy. Follow your heart. Right? You can be satisfied with someone else. Like, God wouldn't have put you in this situation. God wouldn't want this for you. None of that is biblical. <laughs> right? None of it. Instead, to say, hey, how do, we, how do we fight for this? Because this is declaring something bigger than your story. It's telling a story bigger than Carmen and I's story. Now look, with pastoral wisdom and guidance, with believing wisdom and guidance, it may be that some of these allowances that Scripture has given are coming to light in yours. There's no repentance after, after the adultery or after the affair or after the sexual sin. And so that there's, it feels like there's no, no choice here, right? And then that's walked through with the church, with understanding. But, the, but we have to see then what the goal is. We see that we start with don't divorce. We see why, because it's a picture of the gospel. We see that because of hard hearts in a broken world, there are some biblical allowances. But 
we have to see what, what's the goal, what's the intent. Look at verse 16. So he says, look, stay together. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? The goal is reconciliation. Right? He says it before. Right? That even if you get divorced, like, don't go get remarried real quick. Like, maybe there will be reconciliation that will occur. Like, that, that's, that should be the heart's desire. And so, in marriage, the role that we're called to play, and look, I only get to play one of the two roles. My goal is, my, my expectation, my, what I'm called to is to be faithful. It's to be faithful. And so, if you'll remember back in 1 Corinthians 5, 10, the, the church in Corinth had written back to Paul and said, hey, you said not to be associated with the sexually immoral. And so, Paul is clarifying. He says, no, no, I mean, don't be associated with the sexually immoral in the church. If you were not around those outside the church, you wouldn't interact with anybody. Right? He's saying, but if, if someone is claiming Christ and is living a sexually immoral life, then you need to, there needs to be judgment and discipline. And so you see now where the question has come up that they're saying, wait a second, like, I'm now a believer, my spouse isn't, and they may be living by a sexual ethic that's not mine. So should I leave her? Like, should, should I leave her? Like, is it defiling me? I don't want to not please Jesus. Like, they're asking potentially a legitimate question. And he says, look, no, 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 they're not, they're not defiling you. They're not going to make you less holy. He says, in fact, let's trust what the Lord is doing here, that it may be, in fact, that they're going to become a believer because of your faithfulness to them. Because of you living out, right, this ethic that's new. Because of you worshiping Jesus because of the fact that the gospel has transformed you. And they're seeing this take place in your life in the day in and day out, because you know them and you're still demonstrating your love and you're being faithful and you're persevering very well, the Lord may be reaching into your family to rescue your spouse, to transform them, to make them his. That he's doing the same thing with your kids. It's not saying that you staying around makes your children holy or makes your spouse holy, but what is allowed is that a holy thing may be taking place. Their rescue their salvation. It's the same thing that Peter writes in 1 Peter. Notice what he says. So he says, wives be subject to your husbands so that even if some of them do not obey the word, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So don't let your adorning be simply external, Right? But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight very precious. This is how the holy women who hoped in God used, used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Right? And he says, like, if you, can, if you can be there with your unbelieving husband, the very life that you're living may rescue them. And it's not that you bring salvation, but it's, it's God's using your example to stir something in their heart, and through it, he's going to rescue them and make them his. So we see that our call is to be faithful. We see our our hope is reconciliation, that we would have a bigger perspective beyond simply our mere happiness and contentment, even our, our, our happiness today. And so it's basically, he's going to tell them, believers, you don't initiate it. You don't initiate it. So we want to be faithful. Our goal is reconciliation. And then this brings us back to where we were last week, this idea of contentment. Right? That we're called to be content. 
in our circumstances, in our situation, because we can trust Jesus is sufficient. That for the single, that Jesus is enough, right? For the widow, that Jesus will be faithful to you morning after morning, day after day, year after year. That for the married in a marriage that is not pleasant, that Jesus will be faithful to you. Again, we say that knowing that none of that is easy to hear. None of that um, necessarily changes the way you feel in the moment, but it's the truth, right? That we are trusting that His mercies are new every day, that the grace that He gives us is sufficient, and He gives us what we need for today. We do not get it stockpiled for a decade down the road. We don't get it stockpiled for even a week down the road. We get it for today, and then we trust Him again tomorrow. So we trust that if, if the expression of our sexuality is disallowed in Scripture because we're not currently in a marriage, and that's the only place that it's allowed, that He's given us the grace we need to be celibate in the meantime, whether that is as a divorced person, a widow, a single, and not yet married. It means that we begin to teach our children and those who are headed towards marriage to take that serious. You get one shot at this. Right, like the, that, the scriptural kind of mandate is you get one shot. And so we don't go into it going, hey, this will be my practice run in my 20s, and then I'll figure it out later on down the road. Right, like he says, like, let's, let's take this serious, the weight of this, that, that what God has intended is for one man and for one woman to come together until death separates them or Jesus returns. And that in this and through this, our marriages are supposed to be imaging and modeling the way that God loves his people to the church and to the world around us. So here's what I, I know probably is running through some of your minds, is you've, you've somehow circumvented some of this, right? You, you jumped into a marriage that you shouldn't have. You married an unbeliever when you were a believer. Some, some, some kind of thing has happened, and the Lord has been gracious to you and has rescued your spouse or has made right a wrong. Here's the thing. The Lord is kind and merciful and gracious, and He often um, corrects things that there were errors on our part. He does that in relationships. He does that in parenting. He does that in all sorts of ways. But we don't willfully run towards sin saying, God will make it right. Right? We don't go, God, I know this isn't who you want me to marry, but you'll fix it. Right? Like, do, do we see the brazenness to run into sin, saying that God will make it right. What his, the call is, is to submit, to trust what he has called us to do. Even if that means loneliness for a little while. Even if that means singleness is a little bit longer. Even if that means marriage maybe isn't on the table right now. That we trust that he is sufficient. That he's enough. And so what Paul then does is, if you remember last week, we looked at the last half of this chapter in regards to singleness, starting in verse 25. Well, we stopped in 17, or 16, excuse me, this morning. In 17 through 24, he kind of makes this weird kind of last argument that seems a little bit um, in left field. So I want to read this real quick, and this is where we're going to wrap up. So he's, he's already addressed married, divorced, widows, single. And so in verse 17, he says, So only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all of the churches. 
Was anyone at the time of his call, meaning like when Jesus saved him, already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of his circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Don't let him seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man in the Lord. And likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So what Paul does is he takes these two kind of random things and he says, look, if you were or weren't circumcised, don't try to change it, right? Your circumstances are not what makes you right with God. It's your identity is in him, not in your physical circumstances, not in your ethnic circumstances. He says, look, look, if you are currently a bondservant, a slave to someone, right, you're no less valuable in the eyes of God. Your identity is not that you're a slave socially and so you're lower class. It's that Jesus has rescued you. He's made you his, and so you are equal with any freed person. And so what he's saying is like whatever status you're currently in, whatever job you're in, whatever life situation you're in, stay there. You can worship God in the stage that you're in. But he, notice what he says to the, 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 free, the bond servants, the slaves. He says, if you get a chance to freedom, take it. So here's what he's saying. If your current situation changes, that's okay too. There's no sin to change it. So he's not saying if you were single when Jesus saved you, you can never get married. It's not what he's saying. He's like, but don't wait for marriage to think that that's when you're going to honor the Lord. You serve him in the current situation as single. If you're a widow, you do it now. If you're married, you do it now. If your situation changes, praise God. But that we are content where we're at because our identity is first and foremost not in our job or our relational status, but it's in who we are in Christ. That we trust his faithfulness. And so here's how we're going to end this. We started saying, look, we don't get divorced. Why? Because it's a picture of the gospel, but there are some biblical allowances. The goal is faithfulness and reconciliation. And so some of you are going, look, that ship has sailed. I'm currently struggling. All right, how do we do this? Because my marriage isn't even happy now. I mean, whatever it is that you're thinking, We can do this because Jesus has loved us this way, right? Like Jesus has pursued you when you were far from him, when you were an enemy to him. He knows you fully. You think people, like your spouse knows you, God knows you. He knows those thoughts that you want to pretend like you didn't think, those desires that you have, that you try to hold down. Like he knows you and he has pursued you and he loves you. Church, his grace outruns your sin. And so the, this morning, if you're thinking, look, I didn't handle this biblically, right? Repent. Own it. Say, God, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't view marriage the way you initially intended me to view it. And know that his grace covers your sin. That forgiveness is available. Understand that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. This is why he's, he's writing to these same brothers and sisters in chapter 6. And listen to what he says. He says, some of, this was some of you, 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. You are forgiven. And so we don't carry around this flag that says, right, I'm a divorcee. That's my sin, what's yours, right? Or this is my sin, right? Alcoholic, right? We don't do that because we have been sanctified by Christ. We have been washed and we are cleansed. And so we want to encourage and point others to avoid sins and mistakes that we've made. We want to show them the biblical expectation and the standard. And then we want to live and walk in the grace that God gives, that his kindness leads us to repentance. He is gracious and good and merciful to us. And that when we look at marriages that are faithful for 40, 50, 60 years, that it would just make us smile on your face, not just because of that cute little love story, because God's been faithful to you. Right? That we would be reminded through the relationships that we see that God is merciful and good and kind, that He's faithful. And that we can find contentment whether it's a widow, whether it's a single, whether it's a married, whether it's a divorcee, right? that God meets us where we're at and ministers to us. So this morning, you may just need to say, God, I'm hurting, help. You may need to find someone to, to give some good pastoral Pauline advice and wisdom to you, right? It matters where we turn to. I, I teach a, a parenting class um, sometimes at the pregnancy center and one of the examples I give is this. It's like, you know, you ever been around um, parents who they only go to other parents who are struggling for advice and you're like, like they have the same issues, the same kids. Like they, they don't go to someone that's a little further down the road and say, how did you make it? <laughs> right? Like how did you survive? Like it's like going to, as a seventh grader in your first relationship, going to another seventh grader and saying, so tell me how y'all stayed together for three weeks. Right? Like that's absurd. Right? Like we don't look for the person that's like limping along as bad as we are for advice. We look at, to see where the Lord has been gracious and faithful and say, will you help me? Right? My marriage is not what I want it to be right now. Help me. Right? Man, my parenting is not where I want it to be right now. Help me. Right? Because we see someone that's not claiming to be perfect, but the Lord's just been kind and they've made it a little further down the road. So what Paul is doing is he's pastoring them. It's what we want to do for one another. So let me pray for us, and we'll, um, if you need someone to talk to, to pray with, um, there'll be some folks in the back of the room. If you, if you just need to let the Spirit minister to you this morning, I just want you to hear once again, you are forgiven, right? Like the, that His grace outruns any sin you've committed. If you want to stand and sing to your King who continues to demonstrate His faithful love to you on a daily basis, would you do that? Let's pray. Father, would we see passages like this and be reminded that your faithfulness is not simply a church word, it's not simply a cliche, that you are faithful, Father, when we gladly run into sin. God, you are faithful when we willfully don't come to you. And Lord, that we don't want to to sin all the more God, we want to long for you. So God, thank you that you are merciful when we're stupid. Thankful, Lord, we're thankful that you are gracious when we're ignorant. God, that you are there, God, when we think we know better. 
And Lord, that when you bring conviction, it's not to crush us, but it's to help us to see a better way, to see hope and to see freedom, to see your intent. God, thank you that your grace is enough today and that it will be enough tomorrow. And that it will be enough in a decade and it will be enough until we either die and go to be with you or you come for us. God, sink that deep within us today. God, would the marriages at Redeemer reflect you in the way that you love us in a way that the world would have to take note. And that we could say, no, 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 not us, not us, Jesus. He came for us and he's done this already. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Y'all stand with us.